Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Tonight on The Readout. I've told you all along, I hate to have to do this. Things are being done. Things are going as normal. I mean, it is uh, uh, just, I hate it, you know, that uh, a lot of these officers are having to go through this. Senator Tuberville is so sorry and in the same breath claims that it's not a big deal that key positions in our armed forces are going unfilled because of him. Even fellow Republicans are done with him. Also tonight, Eric Trump gets testy on the witness stand in the New York fraud case after claiming, I know nothing about the Trump Organization's financial statements that he was when he when he was shown evidence that he did know. Oops. Plus, the more you learn about Speaker Mike Johnson, the more you realize that behind that mild mannered temperament is an extremist with a history of inflammatory rhetoric on LGBTQ issues. And a live report from the Israel-Gaza border after a day of intense bombardment as Israeli soldiers encircle Gaza City. And we begin tonight with the second day of testimony from Donald Trump's adult sons in the $250 million civil fraud trial against Donald Trump's family and their company. Eric Trump took the stand today following his brother, Don Jr., who testified for hours on Wednesday and again today. Turns out the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Rather, it clings to the tree rather desperately, sounding very much like Donald Trump himself in their deflections and denials. Eric and Don both testified that they had no involvement with documents that a judge has ruled were fraudulently manipulated to inflate the value of their father's business. Those major financial statements presented to them in court? What documents? Eric said he was not even aware that such documents existed. As for errors in those financial statements, Don Jr. shifted blame, insisting it was the accountant's fault. Before even having a day in court, I'm apparently guilty uh, of fraud for relying on my accountant to do, wait for it, accounting. I mean, think about that. What, what does that do for literally any other business? You pay experts millions of dollars to be experts. You sign off on what they give you and you're liable. Okay, Uday. Uh, shortly after Eric Trump testified he'd never worked on the Trump Organization's statement of financial condition, that he didn't know anything about it until this case came to fruition, New York Attorney General Letitia James's office got him to acknowledge that he was aware of those statements as far back as 2013. Trump's two adult sons have spent their careers at their father's company, the Trump Organization, uh, the, the, his, his company, the Trump Organization. Eric worked as an executive vice president at the company. Trump continues to rage about his children having to testify at his fraud trial, sending dime store fake tweets like the ones that you see here. Remember, for Trump, it's the New York fraud case that hits closest to home, and not just because of his sons. He's taking a potentially massive hit to his business and his self-image. And it doesn't even spare Ivanka. Trump and his daughter, Ivanka Trump, are expected to take the stand next week. Ivanka has filed a notice that she is appealing the judge's order 
that she testified. Joining me now is MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin, who was in court today. Uh, tell us about these fireworks, Lisa. God, Joy, today was one of those days that was one of the most bonkers things I've ever seen in court. The problem is every time I come out of this trial, I say some variation of that. Today was a tale of two brothers, and we saw really temperamental differences between the true Trumps, as well as substantive differences between what they did at the company. When Don Jr. says that he did not have involvement in the creation of his father's financial statements, I actually take him at his word. I think he actually did not have that involvement. The problem is the argument that he made to the court that, wait for it, he relied on accountants to do the accounting, doesn't hold up here. The types of financial statements that were being created are called compilations. And in a compilation of a financial statement, the accountants don't do digging to verify the information being presented to them. Rather, they rely on the client to provide them with accurate and true data about the financial state of the company or a person. And that's indeed what Donald Trump Jr. himself verified to Mazars and then later to Whitley Penn, who were their two accounting firms. Let me talk about Eric for a second, because he was different. Don Jr. was pleasant. He gave admissions easily. It made it seem like nothing big happened with him. Eric, on the other hand, refused to give an inch all day long. And as you noted in your opening, Eric basically disclaimed responsibility for anything and everything except that the documents show that he actually did have some responsibility. So it's sort of a case of the evolving Eric Trump. No, I had nothing to do with it, or I might have had a little bit of something to do with it. And at the end of the day, we were really going to see the blockbuster Eric Trump's deposition in 2020, where he took the fifth over 500 times. Wow. Uh, Lisa Rubin, thank you uh, for sitting in on the shenanigans for us. Uh, appreciate your reporting. Uh, let's bring in Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal lawyer. He is the host of the Mia Copa and Political Beatdown podcast and is the author of Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the Department of Justice against his critics. Good to see you, uh, Michael. I want to get you to respond to that. So Don Jr. claiming he had no involvement whatsoever in the statements of financial condition and just relied on the accountants. Eric Trump being a little bit more squirrely on that. Your thoughts? Yeah, so one of the things that Don Jr. stated, and I read in the paper, is that he was really just a broker. Now, I'm not really even sure what that means. Yeah, he may have his brokerage license here in New York, but that's not what his job entailed. Then you have Eric Trump's uh, earlier testimony where he stated, <laughs> get a load of this one, Joy, that he poured concrete now, I could tell you emphatically that Eric Trump has never poured concrete in his life. He probably couldn't even figure out how to make quick set using just the quick set and water in a bucket. I mean, it is so fundamentally flawed that it's comical. I mean, it. And I could understand Lisa Rubin's comments about the tale of two brothers. It was more of a comedy than anything. You know, the other piece of it is that, you know, you had another confrontation with the judge over his clerk and this sort of seeming obsession that Donald Trump and one of his lawyers, Chris Kyes, has with this clerk. What do you make of the fact that we know that the first part of this case is over? They've already been adjudicated guilty of fraud. All the, the, the judge gets to decide how much they have to pay. What do you make of the fact that they don't seem to be understanding that pissing this judge off is a bad idea? Yeah, well, Chris Kyes. 
there's something very seriously wrong with him. Uh, he attacked me vociferously when I was on the stand, getting up, calling me all sorts of he based. That's all that they do is they know how to denigrate. Um it's not going to bode well for him. It's about the last thing that you want to do, especially when your co-counsel messed up and failed to you know, check the box for the jury trial. Hence, of course, why it's a bench trial right now. So before you want to sit there and attack, even after the judge has now sanctioned Trump twice and placed the gag order onto him, all they're really doing is playing to a party of one. And how many times have I said this to the public, to, to those people who are MAGA supporters, whether it's MAGA supporters who are members of Congress? Look at what happened to me. I promise you the same thing is going to happen to you if you don't wake up and extricate yourself from the cult. All Chris Kyes is doing is playing to a party of one. Why? I have no idea. Yeah, and, and to your point about the, the cult, and, and it, the big lie is the center of it. We've seen now that members of Congress really have to just get out of Congress if they're Republicans and they don't accept the big lie. But this, there's, there's an interesting thing that's come out through this trial. Uh, Donald Trump's junior's cross-examination. Prosecutors presented a document dated January 15, 2021, that showed the former president reinstating himself as trustee of the Donald J. Trump revocable trust. Full control of Trump's tr trust would have been returned to the former president on January 20, 2021, the day he left the White House. That means he knows he lost, right? Well, it sure sounds like that. Otherwise, why would he you know, sign that document to take control back? Obviously, he knows that if you are the president of the United States, and if he really thought that he won and that there was a legitimate challenge, he certainly wouldn't be asking to take back control because if, in fact, he was right, well, then he would have to go ahead and redo the documents all over again, transferring the authority again to Don Jr. and to Eric and to Alan Weisselberg as the trustee. So it clearly shows that he knew that he lost why he ended up. I mean, again, there's no thought when it comes to this group. They just do things. And then afterwards, when confronted, what do they do? Exactly what they accuse everyone else of doing. They deflect and they lie. Let me also talk about Donald Trump's um, demeanor here at this point. We under I mean, I think it's clear that this case is enraging him because it is about his money. Um, when it, there's an there's an excerpt from Jonathan Carl's book on Trump's outburst at Chris at his lawyer Todd Blanche, one of his attorneys, when the judge announced the court date of March 25, 2024, and I think this is actually in the in the 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 case about uh, the insurrection, he screamed at him, "This is going to be in the middle of the primaries. If I lose the presidency, you're going to be the reason." We've also had Trump talking about "I'm your retribution" and that kind of thing and that kind of reaction to things. Steve Bannon, one of his aides, has said that he couldn't stop touting Trump saying that, referring it to it as his come retribution speech. Come retribution, according to some Civil War historians, served as the code words for the Confederate Secret Service's plot to take hostage and eventually assassinate President Lincoln. The, the, es the escalating rhetoric, in your view, what does that bode for us? Well, look, I've often said, and I'm going to say it again on your show tonight, so hopefully people pay attention. You must listen to what Donald Trump says. He's not just speaking, you know, boldly and blindly. He's telling you exactly what's on his mind 
probably foolish, but he is telling us what's on his mind and more importantly, what he intends to do. So when he says that on day one, if he wins, he's going to rewrite the Constitution, he's not joking. He thinks that he can rewrite the Constitution. And if somehow, because of all of the sycophants that are there, he manages at least to delay or to get a hold of the full power of the United States government by um taking the power away from the judiciary and the legislator and um, conveying it upon the executive branch. I'm telling you, that's what he thinks he can do. And that's what he will try to do. He is by far the single most dangerous thing to happen to American democracy, maybe in the United States history. How much more dangerous does he become if he loses a large chunk of his wealth due to this trial? You know what? Um, I think more important than that is what happens if he loses the election again? Mm, Because, look, I've often said that one of the things that Donald will do is he's a copycat. He likes strongman. We know this. We like the I mean, likening to the fact of the relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, with Kim Jong Un, with Vladimir Putin. What do we what do I think that he'll do? I think he'll end up copying. And I know this sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. This is actually what I truly believe, knowing him as well as I do, that he will try to do or he will attempt to do exactly what Mohammed bin Salman did when he grabbed all of the other royals and took, I don't even know, $150 billion from them. That'll be nothing compared to what Trump will do to folks like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, the Waltons. I mean, he will go to each and every one of them and he will take from them the bulk of their assets. And if you think that this is something he's not going to try or he's not thinking about, you'd be wrong. It's exactly what he's thinking, that overnight he will be the richest man in the world. He'll just say to Elon Musk, I know you think you're worth $300 billion. I'm going to let you keep one, but you're signing yeah. over the other 299 to me. That's how strong men work. Yeah, it is certainly what Vladimir Putin did as well. Uh, scary stuff, but scaring is caring, as, as we say on this show. Believe what your eyes are telling you about this man. Exactly. Uh, Michael Cohen, thank you as always. Much appreciated. And up next on the cheers and up next on the readout, coach Tommy Tuberville is starting to catch heat from all sides now as his Republican Senate colleagues ramp up their pressure campaign to get him to lift his pointless hold on military promotions. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future.
That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future. Prior to becoming Alabama's senior senator, Tommy Tuberville was a fairly successful football coach at Auburn University. He translated that experience into a new gig in the United States Senate. How he managed to pull off any of that is a marvel, considering that shortly after winning that Senate seat, he told reporters that the three branches of government are the House, the Senate, and the executive. Alabama's constitutional scholar and insurrectionist enabler is currently responsible for holding up nearly 400 military nominations and promotions due to his opposition to the Pentagon's abortion travel policy. At first, he probably thought that it would score on political points and media attention, which it did. But now, with all of the issues that we're facing around the world, people are sick and tired of the theatrics. Sources within the Department of Defense are holding him personally responsible for the Marine Corps chief's hospitalization due to a heart attack. General Eric Smith had been filling both the number one and the number two Marine Corps posts from July until he was finally confirmed as commandant in September. He was part of the Tuberville blockade. A DOD official told Politico, I cannot help but think because at the end of the day, Eric Smith is a human. The Tuberville's unnecessary stress that he's put on the situation where you don't have a backup has added a level of complexity and danger to an already bad situation. You know who else is sick of Tuberville's BS? Republicans, who led an effort to move nominations forward just last night. You've just denied this lady a promotion. You did that. No matter where you believe it or not, Senator Tuberville, this is doing great damage to our military. I don't say that lightly. What are we doing to these military men and women? Politics are being injected right here today. We're going to look back at this episode and just be stunned at what a national security suicide mission this became. And they kept up their attacks this morning. Senator Tuberville says there's no risk to the military. There absolutely is risk to the military. And that's maybe because he hasn't served in uniform. He doesn't understand how the promotion system works. It's a dangerous time. We need to field our entire national security team, including these military officers who deserve their promotions. If we normalize this and every senator follows the lead of Senator Tuberville, you'll ruin the military. This afternoon, the Senate was able to confirm three critical nominations, but 300 remain blocked. Democrats are considering tweaking Senate rules for the rest of this year to allow a process for the Senate to pass multiple military nominations together. It would not apply to other nominations, and it's something Republicans do not like. Joining me now is Paul Rykoff, founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and host of the Independent Americans podcast. Paul, good to see you. It is uh, pretty astounding uh, that Tuberville is still keeping this up. But I want to play a piece of sound for you because, to, you know, he keeps saying things like, I'm going to keep this up because I have principles and all they have to do is just change their policy and I'll stop. But I want you to listen to what he said in August on the Kimberly Guilfoyle podcast. I don't care if they promote anybody, to be honest with you. We've got 44 four-star generals right now. We only had seven during World War II. So I think we're a little overloaded to begin with. And there you have it. He doesn't care if anybody gets promoted. Your thoughts? What we're overloaded with is stupid senators. I mean, this man is is radical. 
He's racist. He's reckless. And he's a political suicide bomber. Uh, he is maybe the most dangerous member of the Senate right now because of all those reasons. I mean, he's willing to go in there and, and blow it all up over his personal agenda, which is to try to deny reproductive rights to women in, in the military, which is absurd in its own right. But by linking those two, he's just kept this going for months and months. And it's about damn time somebody took him on. I mean, I've been talking to you about this for months, a lot of whining, a lot of campaigning. And now Democrats and Republicans are finally taking them on. And, and I think it's hitting them. Uh, Dan Sullivan is a Marine Corps veteran himself. Uh, Joni Ernst has served in the military. And Tuberville is so bad and so radical and so stupid. He's making Lindsey Graham look good. I mean, that, that's that's what's happening <laughs> right now, because, because it's just so ridiculous what he's done. And it's not just hurting our military. It's hurting our allies. It's hurting Ukraine. It's hurting Israel. It's hurting everybody else who depends on the American military right now. You know, the Senate Armed Services Committee majority staff put together a report that I have here in front of me. And it's really kind of shocking when you go through it and you read, you know, you're talking about 20 officers selected um, that have to assume duties of their higher grade officers. So people have to do multiple jobs. There are kids who can't be enrolled in school because their parents don't know where they're going to live. It also pointed out that if Tommy Tuberville got his way on the policy for abortion travel, Members of the United States military would actually have fewer rights than federal prisoners. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the world that Tommy Tuberville wants to create. He is a radical. And, and he's been backed up by about 10 other members of the Senate that I've talked to you about before. I've called them the Confederate wing of the GOP. They want to drag our military back to the 1800s. They don't want women to have any rights. They don't want there to be any diversity. Uh, they don't want us to be strong and, and ready to defend our enemies. And, and they've decided that the military is going to be the place to wage their culture war. And I think the Republicans have finally had enough, in part because they see it's bad politics. I think they understand it's hurting the GOP. I think it's going to hurt them in a general election. I think the Democrats have underplayed this. I wish they had hit them harder on this more often. But now it's come to this. Last night, Joy, it was almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. He just kept standing up saying, I object. I object. 61 times he objected to honorable American heroes being brought before the Senate. And he's not going to stop. So they're going to have to run him over. They're going to have to go around him. And I hope reasonable Republicans will run against him. This guy is an embarrassment, not just to Alabama and the GOP. He's an embarrassment to the entire country country. Yeah, I don't have a reasonable Republican to play for you right now, so I'm just going to play Josh Hawley instead. Here's Josh Hawley. <laughs> what should the Republican leaders do? Uh, but like, actually get a solution? I mean, what, what are they good for? I mean, what's Mitch McConnell doing here to, to try and resolve? I don't see the Democrats doing this on the floor. I mean, I, I just think it's embarrassing that he allows us to go forward on the floor. Now, a broken clock is right once a day. Uh, and, you know, Josh Hawley's an insurrectionist. But he ain't wrong there because one does wonder, where is Mitch McConnell? It, 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 there's a sense in which it seems that he's lost control of his caucus. He's supposedly the sort of master manipulator of his caucus. Why can't he stop this? Because he doesn't want to. Or maybe because he's a coward or maybe he doesn't want to prioritize our national sky. I don't know why, Joy, but I think he, he's misplayed this politically. Uh, he's endangered our national security. And now we've got families around the globe that, that can't move. And, and we've got the Marine Corps commandant who was driven into the ground. He was worked so hard he had a heart attack. I mean, this is what happens when you ask hundreds of military officers to do multiple jobs in a time of combat. So we didn't have a Marine Corps commandant and we didn't have somebody ready because Tuberville was blocking all the replacements. And this is why 
why we've got Marines on embassies in places like Israel. So it's really throwing a political hand grenade in the entire establishment. And I think McConnell has, has misplayed it. And I think now he's got somebody like Dan Sullivan who's outflanking him. And I think it exposes how weak McConnell is, frankly, in his ability to take on his own party and to prioritize patriotism and our national security over petty partisan politics. That's very extreme. I think that's really yeah. important to keep focusing on. Tuberville is an extremist and he has to be marginalized and he has to be neutralized. Yeah, it is. And religious extremism, and as you said, sort of this sort of anti-woke, you know, go back to the Confederate era agenda. It's bizarre. Uh, and he seems to be getting away with it, at least for now. Paul Rykoff, thank you very much, my friend. Much appreciated. Up, Cheers. And up next, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is letting it all hang out, leaving no doubt about his extremist views on LGBTQ issues and abortion rights. I will tell you why voters should be very, very concerned about it after this quick break. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. You have to think Republicans chose Mike Johnson to be House Speaker precisely because everyone would say, who? Yet every day, it seems we learn something new about the zealotry beneath his high-diddly-ho Ned Flanders exterior. We already knew Johnson spent most of the 2000s trying to block freedoms for LGBTQ people as an attorney for the Alliance Defending Freedom. According to CNN, while working with, with working with ADF, Johnson gave legal advice to and worked with an organization called Exodus that promoted so-called gay conversion therapy. And in 2008, he blamed homosexuality for the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, the whole Roman Empire. There's also new details about his work as a private lawyer prior to going into politics. In 2014, he was one of several attorneys representing the state of Louisiana in a case to block a mother from adopting her wife's biological son. That case became moot after the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in 2015, which Johnson says he respects as a rule-of-law guy. I respect the rule of law, but I also genuinely love all people, regardless of their lifestyle choices. This is not about the people themselves. I, I am a Bible-believing Christian. Yeah, except that since being in Congress, Johnson has voted against federal recognition of same-sex marriage, sponsored a federal don't-say-gay law like the one Ron DeSantis put in place in Florida, and partnered with Marjorie Taylor Greene herself on legislation to block gender-affirming care for transgender teens. Here he is on that topic just four months ago. Contrary to what some of my Democrat colleagues believe, the scourge of radical gender ideology is very real. 
The most vehemently anti-LGBTQ Republican politician since Mike Pence is now second in line to the presidency. As for the people who have to work with Speaker Johnson, during the fourth and final speaker vote last week, Congresswoman Angie Craig of Minnesota used her vote to make a special shout out. Craig. Representative Angie Craig joins me now. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here. And you know, you are a history maker. You are the first lesbian mom elected uh, to Congress, and you had actually a, a quite a legal battle in order to legally adopt your eldest son, and, and you actually helped establish the rights of LGBTQ couples in Tennessee. So you have a lot of personally at stake in these issues. So I just want to ask you, what is your level of concern, fear, worry about what Mike Johnson might try to do legislatively to your community? Well, first, let me say it's great to be with you. And more importantly, my wife absolutely loves you, Joy. So <laughs> let me start by shouting it out here today as Thank well. You. Look, we, we've been fighting people like Mike Johnson uh, for the last 30 years, my entire adulthood. My wife and I, we have four wonderful sons. Um, the youngest is 20 and the oldest is 26. And you're exactly right. Uh, we've battled this kind of uh, homophobia and discrimination our entire adult lives. Sadly, uh, I thought uh, that re the Republican conference was moving a little bit past it because I come from one of the swingiest districts in America. And guess what? They keep sending this lesbian mother of four to Congress. So Republicans in my district have moved past this kind of discrimination. Um, and I don't know when uh, Republicans here in Congress, and in particular, Mike Johnson, are going to get the message that uh, this is not something, this kind of discrimination and hate is just not something that the American people are moving toward. They're moving away from it. You know, you make a good point, because there is a question about whether Republicans thought through what the impact of him, once people sort of know more about him, will be on their reelect. Um, the Human Rights Campaign's president, Kelly Robinson, this is what she tweeted. She tweeted, Mike Johnson is someone uh, who doesn't hesitate to scream his hatred for the LGBTQ plus community from the rooftops while introducing legislation that seeks to erase us from society and history. And then this was the kicker. Everyone who voted for him will have a stain on their record. Do you foresee people essentially using this in elections, not just his reelect, but every member that voted for him? I think it really shows you uh, exactly what the Republican conference has become. And the fact that my colleagues on a unanimous basis voted for someone who doesn't support the right to my family, to even exist, the fact that uh, they, on a unanimous basis, supported someone who supports a federal abortion ban um, and voted and worked to overturn the 2020 election, I think it shows you exactly what the Republican conference has become. And I think on the topic of LGBTQ equality, I know my voters have moved past this discussion. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't the fall of the Roman Empire. And when we got marriage equality in 2016, uh, my wife and I had already been married in another state for many, many years. So um, it certainly hasn't been the fall of uh, Minnesota either when we uh, made same-sex marriage legal. And 
all of this is sort of uh, coming around uh, again for me because, you know, my first foray into any sort of uh, public um, uh, government uh, lobbying for uh, my own, uh, just field organizing, it was for the marriage equality battle in Minnesota all those years ago. And so, you know, I, I really just worked 22 years in the private sector and woke up one day and said, you know what, uh, we have a lot that we need to go fix and accomplish. And part of that was passing the Equality Act. And I just don't believe the American people are going to want to go backward on these topics at all. And, and, you know, I think this is the challenge, right, is that the American people in a majority you are right. All the polls say that they don't want to go back. But Americans also didn't want to go backwards on abortion. And we have a Supreme Court that doesn't care what most Americans want. They rolled back abortion. And Clarence Thomas has indicated he would love to have an opportunity to also get rid of the right to have contraception. He would love to overturn marriage equality. And he would also lo love to overturn the Lawrence v. Texas case, which literally would allow states to criminalize same-sex couples. Are you concerned that maybe— People in the, on the Democratic side aren't taking the religious fanatics seriously, aren't taking Christian nationalists seriously when they say they are going to roll it all back. Well, that's, of course, why in the last session of Congress, we felt so strongly about getting the Respect for Marriage Act across the finish line, because um, when the Dobbs decision came out, when this Supreme Court said precedent no longer matters, um, it should be a, a call for us all to take them very, very serious. I also, Joy, though, think that this is much like the Dobbs decision, um, a little bit like uh, the dog that caught the car, if they accomplish anything close to this. I can't tell you the number of times I've had uh, Republican constituents come up to me and say, look, um, you know, I don't always vote for Democrats. Right. Um, but I tell you what, my son is gay or my daughter's a lesbian or my granddaughter. And thank you for representing. Thank you for um, telling us openly, hey, my name is Angie. I have a wife and we have four sons. Um, yeah. And oh, by the way, let's go fix the damn roads <laughs> and make health care more affordable. You know, it's just yeah, um, it's become something that uh, is really meaningful back home in our district. Uh, well, Congresswoman Angie Craig, thank you so much for being here. Please tell your wife hello uh, and thanks for watching. We really appreciate you both. Have a great evening. Thanks, Joy. You just did. <laughs> thank you. All right. Bye. All right. Coming up, uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim sentiment surge as far-right politicians and pundits fan the flames of bigotry with their disgusting rhetoric. That plus a live report from the Israel-Gaza border is straight ahead. Today, Dick Durbin became the first U.S. senator to call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It comes as Israeli forces say that they have completed the encirclement of Gaza City, while over the past few hours, the sky in Gaza has been lit up by a flood of flares and explosions. NBC's Ellison Barber joins me from the Israel-Gaza border. Ellison? Yeah, Joy, we were standing here reporting as we watched those flares, that flood of activity happen in what appeared to be the outskirts of the northwest outskirts of Gaza City. We're in a bit of a lull right now in the last 30 minutes or so where things have been a little quieter. But the night started with those images you were showing of flares, massive amounts of flares in the sky, in this pocket, kind of over here. And underneath the flares, we could see 
a number of explosions taking place on the ground as well as just plumes of smoke coming up. That started to happen not long after a spokesperson with Israel's defense forces had said in a briefing that Israeli forces had completed, that's how he described it, completed the encirclement of Gaza City. Those flares, according to what military experts were saying as they watched some of that, uh, some of those images with us, were saying that it appeared that a bunch of flares had been sent up and were staying up as ground operations were moving forward. We have since then heard a lot of heavy, uh, heavy caliber artillery fired into the direction of northern Gaza. In recent days, Hamas has released various uh, images, various videos showing their fighters on the ground using that intricate tunnel system to target Israeli tanks. Israel has been very clear that they plan to continue expanding this war and this particular phase on the ground for the foreseeable future. They have told Israeli citizens again and again to prepare for a long, difficult war. This next phase, we presume, will be more face-to-face combat inside of Gaza City. That, prior to the war, was the most populated city in the Gaza Strip. What will happen there is what is described as urban combat, which is incredibly difficult for any military. It's often very bloody. We've seen it in a lot of wars that have taken place in Ukraine in the last couple of years. But a thing that is an added component here is the fact that Hamas does have an incredibly intricate tunnel system underneath Gaza that they'll be able to use to operate with it moving forward. A lot of civilians, they have been told to evacuate. There are over 1.4 million internally displaced Gazans. But the reality is, anytime we see a strike inside of Gaza, Joy, civilians tend to be impacted because there is really nowhere for them to go to find safety. Joy. Wow. Ellison Barber, thank you very much uh, and stay safe. Uh, Meanwhile, a new warning from FBI Director Christopher Wray about the potential threats that we face here at home. Here in the United States, our most immediate concern is that violent extremists, individuals or small groups, will draw inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks against Americans going about their daily lives. That includes not just homegrown violent extremists inspired by a foreign terrorist organization, but also domestic violent extremists targeting Jewish or Muslim communities. It comes as we are seeing an alarming rise in hate against both the Jewish and Muslim communities. The Anti-Defamation League says that in the two weeks following the October 7th Hamas attack in Israel, it has seen a a nearly 400 percent increase in reported anti-Semitic incidents. And the Council on on American Islamic Relations says reported incidents of Islamophobia are up 182 percent. Just this week, the Justice Department charged a Las Vegas man who left voicemails threatening to kill Nevada Senator Jackie Rosen, who is Jewish, over Israel's military attacks on Gaza. A Cornell University student was charged with making online threats that included threatening to violently assault and kill Jewish students at the university. And an Illinois man who fatally stabbed a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was in court facing murder and hate crime charges. And while the response to this should be to condemn all forms of hate, some on the right are instead adding fuel to the fire, using disgusting rhetoric, frankly, against Muslims and Arab Americans. Jesse Waters did this unhinged rant yesterday on Fox. I want to say something about Arab Americans Mm. and about the Muslim world. We, when I say we, I mean the West and Western technology have created the Middle East. We made them rich. 
We got that oil out of the ground. Our military protects all of these oil shipments flying around the world, making them rich. We fund their military. We respect their kings. We kill their terrorists. Okay, but we've had it. We've had it with them. Wow. While Republican Congressman Brian Mast made this vulgar comparison on the House floor. I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. Ooh, joining me now is Peter Strzok, former deputy assistant director for the FBI and author of the book Compromised. Uh, Peter, great to see you. Um, let me read the White House's response to Jesse Waters. He said, the White House, uh, this is Andrew Bates, the White House spokesperson, told the Daily Beast, Fox News, Fox owes an apology to every single viewer for the sickening attack on the rights and dignity of their fellow Americans. President Biden will always stand up against Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. Fox News should learn from his example. What's your response? No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, look, there is only so much that law enforcement can do. You can double the number of FBI agents. You can add tens of thousands of police officers. But that isn't going to stop some man in Illinois from stabbing a six-year-old child. That is not going to stop some man from calling into a Nevada senator and making threats. That is a result of statements that are being made by political leadership, statements that are being made by some in the media. It's abhorrent, and it needs to stop. And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is the dialogue in America going the other way. You know, even Donald Trump is calling for a reinstitution of the Muslim travel ban if he's reelected. These are the exact opposite of the sort of statements that we need to be hearing from our political and media leaders. I mean, the, the, the sort of standard term for that is incitement, right? And so when you're seeing, uh, you know, even members of Congress inciting hatred against entire communities of people in the United States because of something that's happening thousands of miles away, there, like you said, law enforcement can't do anything about that. Is there some way that people are going to have to increase their personal security? Because what you're seeing is a lot of Jewish Americans buying guns, right? They're saying we got to arm ourselves. And you're seeing a lot of Arab and Muslim Americans just throwing up their hands and saying, who has even got our back? Look, well, I think that's a conundrum right now. Uh, Director Ray, in his testimony yesterday, said, look, even people should try and continue to live their lives, but to be vigilant. But he had an amazing statistic. He said that roughly 2.4 percent of the population in the United States is Jewish, yet they face almost 60 percent of religious-based crime. And so when you have that sort of threat, it doesn't matter if you're generally safe. That can't help but have some sort of psychological impact. So the challenge, of course, is to try and continue to live your life as normal. But in the face of these threats, you know, you can't help but be impacted by that, regardless of your community, Jewish, Islamic or otherwise. Is there something that college campuses could be doing differently? Because there are a lot of the sort of threats and sort of the environment, you know, is really becoming tense even on college campuses, which is supposed to be a safe place for students. Well, absolutely. And not only a safe place, but a safe place to exchange ideas. And so right. there is certainly a fine line between legitimate discourse, but there's absolutely no place for hate speech. So colleges and universities, I think, need to be very cognizant of the fact that, yes, you want to encourage debate. Yes, you want to encourage freedom of expression, but there's absolutely no place for outright hate speech. And sadly, we're seeing, you know, Cornell University, we're seeing the student who was arrested for making these abhorrent threats and comments. So I think particularly in academic settings, this is something where academic leaders really need to lean forward mm-hmm. and encourage that debate and dialogue, but at the same time make it very clear that there's a bright line when it comes to hate that absolutely won't be tolerated 
whatever side of the issue right. that's on. And I'm glad that you said that because making the debate possible because there's also pe- people being punished for speech when people are simply trying to make and advocate for positions peacefully and they're being punished for that and doxed, et cetera. Um, are, are you concerned about this, combina- this combination, as I am, of the kind of displacement of rage away from what's happening there, not just focusing on the tragedy and on the loss of life and on children being killed, but then turning that into hate speech here. At the same time, we're also seeing this rise in Christian nationalism here, um, in which people are essentially declaring the United States to be a you know Christian nation. And there's implications there that other communities are not welcome. Well, it's certainly dangerous, I think, Joy, when you look at any time a government clearly associates themselves or any member of the government tries to associate themselves with a faith in the kind context of that faith being a guiding principle, not just for their behavior, but for the government. Right. And so when you see this, I, it, to me, it's dangerous, one, because it marginalizes people who are not of that faith. And the other thing is we have a strong tradition, going back to the Federalist Papers and our founding fathers, yeah. that yes, you know, there's an acknowledgement of God, but there's also a clear separation That's of church right. and state. Yeah. And this is taking it the other way and doing it at a time when yeah. we have religious violence on the rise. It's a pretty uh, you know, dangerous combination. It's a dangerous mix. Uh, Peter Strzok, thank you. Always appreciate you being here and your expertise. Uh, thank you. And coming up, the jury has returned a verdict in the Sam Bankman free trial. We'll get to that next. Just moments ago, a jury in New York found former crypto billionaire Sam Bankman freed guilty on all seven criminal counts. The co-founder of the popular cryptocurrency exchange FTX was charged with wire fraud, securities fraud and money laundering, among other things. Prosecutors allege that he stole billions of dollars in customer funds and used the money to buy luxury real estate and other investments and to make political contributions. During the trial, Bankman-Fried took the stand in his own defense, testifying that he took on too much risk and hurt his customers, but did not commit fraud. His top three associates pleaded guilty and testified against him. Bankman-Fried could face decades, decades in prison. And that is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 